Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild Card Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Friday, September 17th, and we're talking about toast. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined by Fool.com's tippy top tea toddler of tremendous treasure troves, Brian Feroldi. Brian, how's it going? Dylan, tell me if you've heard this one before. We're going to dig through an S1 today, <laughs> and it's a tech company. I know, listeners at this point are like, are you guys ever going to talk about earnings? <laughs> You know, we just hit so many of these prospectuses. There have been so many interesting companies that have come uh, public. This this business we're going to be talking about today, Toast, soon to be public, probably at some point later this month. And I have to say, Brian, before we get into the breakdown of the company, got to give a shout out to one of our listeners. We're talking about Toast today because Daniel wrote in, said, be interested to hear about the Toast IPO. Sounds like a compelling industry with real growth potential. Love the show. I think just to kick things off, Brian, let's talk a little bit about who this company is and what they do. I'd never heard of Toast uh, prior to me reading through the the IPO, but apparently they are a big deal in the restaurant uh, industry. Uh, first, a little background about the IPO itself. We still don't have all the details yet, so the data we're going off of is the most recent S1A. The company is looking to come public somewhere between thirty and thirty-three dollars. Although, as we've seen before, that price could move. If they hit thirty-three dollars, it looks like they'll raise about eight hundred million dollars, and the valuation of this company will be. 15 billion. This is a big software company that I'd never heard of. Yeah, it's definitely in that category for me of like, I was shocked at the sticker price of the valuation that was being thrown around given uh, I, you know, prior to the email, hadn't really heard much about this business, hadn't followed it much. Uh, But super interested because uh, this is a company, Brian, that plays in a space similar to a stock that you and I really like, and that's Olo. We've talked about that on the show before. Very different business, very different financial makeup. But at core, this is a business that is bringing technology to restaurants. And that has been a very compelling story, especially over the last two years. I mean, what has happened to the restaurant industry over the last two years is nothing short of, of seismic. And that what the changes that have gone on in the restaurant industry have really been a huge tailwind uh, for Toast. So let's start quickly with just the mission about the company. First off, they have a good mission and they promote it right up front. Uh, Toast's mission is to empower the restaurant community to delight their guests, do what they love, and thrive. I love it. Yeah, that's it's straightforward. Tells you exactly what you need to know. And if you watch... Any uh, speeches given by their CEO, Chris Camperato, uh, very stakeholder-oriented in how he goes about explaining what Toast does. Uh, there is a, a multi-stakeholder approach here where they're looking at the restaurateurs, they're looking at the employees, they're looking at the end customers, and really, you need to check every single box. You need to delight everybody uh, to find something that truly works in the industry. Yeah. So we've talked about Olo before on the show. As you call out, we have both shareholders. Olo is short for online ordering, and that gives you a sense of what that company's focused on. Uh, Toast really focuses on basically every other thing that a restaurant could possibly uh, need. So quick background on the restaurant industry. Most people have been to a restaurant and they realize restaurants are complex organizations to run. 
There are custom food orders all the time. The menus are constantly changing. At the same time, food is perishable and the industry has high turnover and high failure rate mixed with low margins. When you combine COVID on top of that and the fact that consumers are demanding online ordering, mobile ordering, payment at the terminals, and delivery is a huge task for these restaurants to keep up with the changing times. Yeah, Brian, and I think just to underscore that for a second, if if you listen to the Tuesday show, the Consumer Goods show, they get into retail and restaurants. And the businesses that have thrived over the last five years have been the chains that have made heavy investments in mobile and customer rewards programs, right? The Chipotles of the world, the Starbucks of the world. I think it's it's proven over the last couple of years to be difficult even for very large organizations to nail that. Imagine being a smaller business, maybe a regional chain or a mom and pop shop. I mean, it's near impossible to do that on your own. You really need someone else to be bringing that stuff in for you. Yeah, just think about all the functions that a restaurant over need, restaurant owner needs to think of to service their customers and their uh, employee employees. Uh, there's just taking the payments, uh, collecting the orders. There's marketing. There's recruiting. There's payroll. Again, there's dealing with mobile orders. That's a lot going on. Historically, restaurants have taken care of each of those functions either through manual processes or by buying one or two specific, uh, a few different uh, specific software packages. Toast start got its start um, by providing restaurants with um, with point of sale uh, solutions, but they have now expanded significantly to or to offer basically any software tool that a restaurant could need. So they offer point of sale. Payment, payment processing, gift cards, loyalties. They can help with inventory, with kiosks, menu management, with uh, online ordering. And more recently, they've gotten into back office processes, just payroll, uh, marketing, recruiting, and even capital. So Toast platform really handles everything that a restaurant needs. I want to take that huge menu of features that you just laid out there and tie it to four figures that were thrown out there in a keynote that Toast CEO gave a few years ago. And I think he does a very good job of painting a problem in the or the problem in the restaurant industry with a couple numbers here. Uh, the first one is 5%. And that is the typical gross margin for a restaurant. So, I mean, we talk about a ton of businesses on the show, Brian. Uh, 5% is definitely on the lower end of gross margins, uh, for, for especially for the tech show. But just generally, there's not a lot of money left over to go around and either invest in your business, grow, do whatever it is that you'd want to do. Um, you're running on tight margins to begin with. 73%, the second number, is the turnover in the industry on the staffing side. Three out of four employees leave within a year. The third number, 17%, failure, restaurant, uh, failure rate for restaurants in the first year, and then one in 12, uh, the jobs in the US that are in the restaurant industry. And so when you put all of that together, you have brutal economics, you have a high turnover industry, both in the employees, but also in the restaurants themselves. The success rate, uh, especially multi-year success rate, is not particularly high. And it is a very large part of the US economy. That, that I think, captures why tech-first solutions, especially things that uh, improve the payment speed that, uh, that employees might get, the benefits that they might get, the access to capital for restaurateurs, anything that helps get at that is going to be super compelling for people in this industry. Those numbers you just threw out are really important. And as a reminder, those are numbers in good times. 
Those are not numbers. Uh, those are not, uh, those numbers get far worse when you throw in a pandemic on top of that. And to say nothing of the labor shortages that we've seen essentially across the United States, restaurants are hurting right now, and they've been hurting for two years. Uh, their comp- companies like Toast are really needed to help these restaurants compete. Let's dive in a little bit to the toast specific numbers here. Uh, Brian, we, we threw out a pretty gaudy potential valuation for this business. Uh, 15 billion plus could be up to, I think, 16 and a half, maybe 17 billion, depending on where that IPO winds up pricing. I'm sure our listeners are wondering okay, well, how big is this thing? What's the scale of this company that we're looking at here? The headline numbers from the company uh, are look, look pretty good. Uh, so the company, as of the most recent uh, quarter, so this is June 30th, 2021, the company reports basically half a billion dollars in annualized uh, recurring revenue. Uh, that figure was up 118% over the prior year. As for the customers themselves, this is the top dog and uh, top dog in the space. They have 29,000 individual customers, and their software is used in more than 48,000 locations. Some of the big customers that they have, you might have heard what heard of, include Jamba Juice, uh, Melting Pot, D'Angelo's, and Papaginos. Now, this is a payments-first solution. That's where the company really got its start and focused on. And as of the last uh, year, they've done $38 billion in gross payment volume, but they also offer a software-as-a-service business on top of that. Uh, Some numbers for that would be their net recurring revenue rate, uh, kind of like the dollar-based net revenue retention rate that we know and love. That figure has consistently exceeded 110%. uh, So some impressive numbers uh, right out of the gate. Yeah, and, and Brian, I, I always try to like equate businesses that I'm not as familiar with to other businesses to just be able to give myself a, a little bit of an understanding for how they've developed over time, what the roadmap has looked like. And I, when I was looking at Toast, I couldn't help but think basically Square for restaurants um, with how they have released their products over time and how they've ex- expanded, started as point of sale. And basically, once you are there as the person who's facilitating payments, you have so much optionality in all of the other things that you're able to hop into. And we have seen that in the timeline for what they have laid out for their customers with every additional year that they've been in business, over 10 years at this point. I think that's a great comparison. And in fact, Square is one of their major competitors. But yes, uh, like like you said, the company did get its start in, uh, in, in financial technology and payments. And even today, that is the lion's share of this company's uh, revenue. As of the first six months of uh, 2021, uh, that f- financial technology solutions, as they call it, that was made up 78% of, uh, of total sales. And that figure grew 121%. Uh, offsetting that is the fact that that is is a pretty low margin business uh, for this company. Uh, their second major source of revenue is subscription services, and that's their SaaS products, and that includes their point of sales uh, software, uh, kitchen display systems, invoicing systems, digital ordering and delivery, marketing, loyalty, etc. Uh, that business is also growing pretty quickly, 52% as of the first half of 2021, but that is only 15% of sales. Uh, that matters because that is the highest margin product that this company offers. Uh, two other revenue segments for this company include hardware, which is the point of sale systems themselves, terminals, tablets, handhelds, etc., that's about 6% of revenue. And there's also a professional services component that uh, for installation of these products, that is about 2% of revenue. Now that's important to know because while hardware and professional services aren't that big of a revenue line, they carry negative gross margins. When you add all that together, this is a pretty low margin business. Yeah. I, I think it's super interesting because 
This company now probably looks a lot different in five years if everything goes the way that they want it to. And I'm kind of looking at fintech, hardware, and professional services and saying like, that is the entryway for them to establish relationships with restaurants. The long-term thing to be super excited about is probably the subscription services side of their business. It's much higher margin, but it's really hard, Brian, to get any revenue on the subscription services side without first establishing yourself with restaurants. The hardware has to be there for point of uh, sale type purposes. Um, And of course, the transactions need to be there. And so you need the fintech solutions. But just looking at what they've been able to do over the last 10 years, you know, it wasn't until 2019 that they started rolling out payroll and team management marketing capital services. Those are the things that make you, uh, one, much stickier for the restaurants that you service, but two, also your, your financials are probably going to look a lot better because that starts to get more into the subscription services uh, that we know are just going to be more beneficial for the company's bottom line. Yeah, totally. That's just the nature of this, the way that this business came uh, came to market. Again, they initially focused on the financial technology part, the point of sale uh, systems, and like you said, once you get that, that's their spear that gets them in the door. And over time, they've gradually been able to build out a full suite of services. Uh, we've seen their gross margin uh, increase over the, over the last year, and I think there's ample reason to believe that it continued to do so, especially as that subscription service continues to take up a larger and larger portion of the total. But it's still worth noting that right. Right now, this is a low margin business. Yeah, getting into the financials here for for the full year of 2020, uh, over 800 million in revenue, up 23% year over year. We went into the sources there and kind of gave the breakdown. Gross margin, when you put it all together, 17%, uh, which was up double from fiscal year 2019. Um, and of course, operating losses, as we'd expect for a company kind of in this stage, of over 200 million and a net loss of about 250 million for the full year. Um, what's kind of fascinating, Brian, about this business is I just laid out the the full year 2020. If you look at the first half of 2021 for this business, radically different growth story and already dramatically improving financials. That makes sense. I mean, the first half of 2020 was god-awful uh, for the restaurant business. Uh, so while this company was winning a huge amount of new business for itself and being installed everywhere, uh, its customers were hurting. So it had to offer very flexible uh, payment terms. There also wasn't a lot of payments flowing through its network. So it makes sense that its one-year financials uh, look a little bit wonky. But the numbers for the first half of 2021 looked much better. Uh, so revenue was up uh, by more than double. Uh, Gross margin expanded to 22%. Um, While they are spending very, very heavily on sales and marketing, on R&D, and on uh, overhead costs, uh, those costs are much more manageable now. So they did report a net loss of $56 million. That does not excite me as an investor. But if you click into that more, the company actually produced free cash flow positive free cash flow of $39 million over that same time period. So this is a case study. This is going to be yet another case study of the difference between net income and free cash flow. <laughs> yeah, it's it's one of the eternal debates, right, Brian? <laughs> um, and I'll take, I'll take free cash flow every single time. So this company has the good one. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, th- I think this is a, a classic business where the, the Year over year numbers are just going to look weird. I mean, it's it's bound to happen. And you know, part of you know wanting to see a company come public and get a couple quarters of results, especially one that operates in the restaurant industry, is just seeing how those things normalize over time. Um, you know, I think we'll probably in the second half of 2021 start to see them hitting 
more standard comps. Uh, I know at one point early on in the pandemic, Toast had to lay off, I think it was about half of their employees uh, due to a lot of the headwinds in the restaurant industry and everything that was happening with the pandemic. So one thing to keep in mind just with this company is we have some sense of what the growth rates are. Don't expect them to be in the triple digit year over year uh, ballpark. I think they're going to be a little bit closer where they've been historically. Although, um, you know, this is the type of business that can find accelerating growth. Um, one thing I think that is, you know, super reassuring to me, Brian, is looking over at the balance sheet. Plenty of coverage here with cash. Uh, as of year end 2020, long term debt of just about 170 million over uh, $580 million in cash on the balance sheet. And based on what we're seeing with the IPO, I think there's going to be even more cash there whenever they go public. They're expecting to have over $1 billion in cash on their balance sheet after they go public. And there are some convertible notes on there and other things uh, that are going to be uh, wiped out. So this company will have plenty of financial flexibility to afford losses if it wants to uh, moving forward. So that's good to see. Um, while you and I were not as familiar with this company prior to doing the show, uh, I, I think it, it seems to be the leader in the space. I think people in the restaurant industry, especially folks that are kind of tech forward in this industry, uh, have followed this company for a while. I know it's part of the like very blossoming tech scene in Boston. Um, is it fair to say top dog, like best, best in class for, for the industry, Brian? Yeah, I would say that that is a fair assessment to make just by the number of restaurants that they have, the number of individual restaurant customers uh, that they have. And then they get great reviews from not only their customers, but also from uh, from third parties uh, saying that they are the fastest growing the, and the biggest, uh, the biggest suite. So I think it's completely fair to say that they're the industry's top dog. And we see a lot of other encouraging signs. I think you know we we want to know that, especially in you know kind of a more nascent space, that we're investing in some of the best in class businesses. Um, we have pretty good social proof of that between what we're getting in terms of customer reviews, what we're seeing in terms of the relationships they have, and also just I mean the scale of the integrations that they have, Brian. Yeah, this is a company that has over 70 restaurant integrations built right into it. That makes its product even more appealing to potential customers. Uh, some of the ones you've probably heard of, uh, they have integrations directly with DoorDash, with Grubhub, with Olo, and with OpenTable. So it really seems like this is a full suite uh, platform. And once you get started on it, you're going to stick with it for a long time. And of course, if we're getting into anything in the subscription space, you know, one of the easiest things we can look at and say, you know, are people delighted is that annual net retention number, uh, 110% recently, which is solid. Um, and we've seen that track over time, uh, trending down a little bit, something to keep an eye on. Yeah, it's it's a fairly it's it's an okay number uh, I would say, but I think that's just the nature of the business that this company is in. Keep in mind they are serving restaurants, and the stat prior to COVID was that about what was it, nineteen percent of restaurants fail uh, in in any given year. Uh, the company does not specifically call out its churn rate, but I think it's fair to say that investors are going to have to expect a fairly high churn rate again, just given the nature of the business. So that net revenue retention rate of one hundred and ten, hundred and fifteen percent, I would say that that's pretty good uh, given the customers that they serve and what investors can expect moving forward. Yeah, that's that's a great point. I mean, they could delight their customers, be fantastic partners. And if the company goes out of business, it's still going to reflect as a lost account on their financials. And there's not a lot you can do about that in a high churn industry like restauranting. Yeah, it reminds me of HubSpot. You just have to think about the customers that it served. HubSpot has never had a dollar-based net revenue retention rate over 100% or it hovers right around there. In absolute terms, that sounds terrible. But when you think that they serve a lot of customers that go out of business, in that context, it's pretty good. Yeah. Um, I, I think this is a classic no shortage of opportunity here. 
type business, Brian. Uh, we mentioned that it's you know a, a best in class and, and leader in the industry. Um, you know, one in twelve jobs in the in the U.S. economy being restaurant jobs. Uh, there is a lot to like here in terms of the potential and really the, the green field in front of this business. The company calls out that in the U.S. alone, there are more than eight hundred and sixty thousand restaurant locations uh, individually that gives the company roughly a six percent market share if you look on a dollar basis though the company believes that its annualized recurring revenue uh, potential in the u.s is about 15 billion dollars and it believes that it has about three percent of the market share there but this company is not just a u.s story or at least it hopes to be not just a U.S. story moving forward. They do call out that they do plan on entering international markets. And if they could do so successfully, the numbers just explode. The company says that there are 22 million restaurant locations globally and that they generate more than $2.6 trillion in annualized sales. So I would say their opportunity in the U.S. is is big, uh, but the real opportunity with this business is international expansion. Yeah, and, and if you're trying to think of how to make sense of that uh, in terms of you know how to how to appropriately discount that as an investor, I would say that's killer optionality. I'm not baking it into what this company becomes in the next three years. You know, it's it's nice to know that that's there for them, but it's not going to be the core reason why I'd be a buyer of this business if I am a buyer of this business. Yeah, I, I agree with that. If the company already had sales in international markets, and that was already like, say, 5 or 10% of the total, and we saw clear signs that, they're, that they were succeeding in international markets, that's one thing. Uh, but we don't see any of that uh, thus far. So that is a nice to have, could ex- expand the pie down the road. But like you, I'm not giving them any credit for that today. Um, I, I mentioned CEO uh, Chris Caparanto uh, before. Um, he is not the founder, but he has been with the company for just about half of its operating history at this point. Um, Looking at management and culture, Brian, uh, there's a decent amount of inside ownership here. Uh, This is a management team where if you are going to become a shareholder, you are basically giving them the power to do what they want to do with that business. That's, That's the way the voting structure is set up. While they only control insiders, uh, first off, let's talk the company, uh, the CEO, Chris uh, Compertor, as you talked about, he joined the company in 2015, uh, but the three co-founders of this business are all still involved. Uh, they currently occupy the roles of president, COO, and CTO, and they have a dual class a share structure, which we've seen many, many times. Uh, so while insiders as a group only own about 15% of, of the business, on a voting basis, they own 99% uh, of the voting power. So what they say says goes. Um, altogether, I mean, I, I think it it's not always a bad thing to see co-founders acknowledging that someone else maybe should be taking the helm of this business. Um, I don't know how you process that as an investor, Brian. You know, there there are a lot of great stories of founder-led businesses that have become wonderful compounders. Um, there are also, you know, great stories of businesses and, and management teams that have identified, you know, it's it's actually time for someone else to run the show here. Yeah, I'm perfectly fine with that. There are people out there that are really good at starting businesses and are, are really good at running them when they're less than 50 or 100 employees. But once you get to a certain size of scale, an entirely different set of skill sets is needed uh, to take a company to, to, to a next level. I really like it when the founders start a company and then continue to be there because it's their soul in the game. They're the ones that really want to think long term. So I'm, I'm fine with this. I, I like the, the introspection of the founders of the company saying, we can't take this company where it needs to be. Let's go out and hire somebody. 
So we have talked about uh, a couple different businesses in even just discussing this company, Brian. Square was, was kind of the easiest way for us to you know, provide a parallel for people and help them wrap their head around this business. Um, and we also mentioned Olo, a company that we're both shareholders of. Uh, I think the competition here is generally going to be these more full suite solutions that, that take an entire look at the business rather than a specific element of the restaurant industry, which is what Olo does. Yeah, that's going to be the number one risk, I think, for investors here is just the huge amount of competition. I mean, in the payment space, uh, we talked about Square. There's also other companies like uh, Touch Bistro, uh, Clover Health, uh, Lightspeed uh, POS, uh, etc. On the on the back office side, they're competing against companies like Oracle, Micros, uh, NCR, Par Technologies. Uh, there's also Heartland Payment System, Shift4, Fiserv, etc. So there is a huge amount of competition uh, in, in the space. So far, the company has been able to transcend that, uh, win market share, and it's doing so because it seems to have the biggest suite of product offerings. But make no mistake, those are some well-heeled competitors uh, in, in the space, and that's going to be something for investors to watch. Yeah, I think putting this all together, I, I really like the way that they have gone to market and the way that they've expanded their offerings over time. Um, it, it creates a, you know, a, a solution that's very obvious to people that are in the restaurant industry just based on the scale of what they're able to do. And there are some industries where, Brian, it, it makes sense to go with something that's slightly more specialized and tailored to what you do rather than you know, a, a square that you know, can do that, but does it for retail in general. Um, and so I, I think there's something really good there. Um, I am a watcher of this stock uh, as it comes public. I will say, I, I think there is something compelling here and worth paying attention to, particularly if we see the subscription side of this business grow, because it's going to have a dramatic effect on what the company financials look like. Yeah, I say I'm I'm right there very with you. Uh, when I was reading through this, there's nothing that jumped out at me as like, God, I want to own this on day one. Uh, but they've clearly built a solid business here. Uh, it's growing fast. The platform is very sticky. Uh, they're the top dog in the space. The founders are still involved. It's mission driven. It's free cash flow positive. Its balance sheet will be pretty good. And its customers really seem to like it. Uh, Offsetting those positives is the fact that it's a low margin business. I really don't know what normalized growth levels for this company look like because the numbers we're seeing have COVID uh, all over them. I don't know what the long-term dilution rate is. My gut feel is it's going to be pretty high. And while there is a big opportunity in the US, they've actually already captured a pretty sizable portion uh, of it. It's not like this company can triple its revenue and still be 1% of the current market opportunity. That means that the international story is really going to have to pay off for investors here. And we have gotten no signs thus far that this concept translates internationally. So that's a big risk for investors to watch. I think you nailed it, Brian. I don't know that I can sum it up any better than you just did. Uh, and we have, I think, successfully gone through an entire episode without making a pun. And so I will end with one here. Uh, I toast you for, for your incredible analysis uh, and the fun that you bring to the show every single toast, week. Toast to you, Dylan, for a wonderful weekend. <laughs> Brian, thanks so much for joining me. Anytime, Dylan. Listeners, that's going to do it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or you want to reach out and say, hey, shoot us an email at industryfocus at fool.com or tweet us at mfindustryfocus. If you're looking for more of our stuff, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, people in the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for all his work behind the glass today, and thank you for listening. Until next time, Fool on. Thank you.